Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Thank you all for coming tonight. Please welcome Father William Saunders. Good to see you all here. Somebody must have bribed you to be here. I don't know if that or there's nothing on television these days, one of the two. But on a Sunday evening to come out for a lecture, that's pretty good, I would think. No, in all sincerity, the, you'll get a kick out of my slide projector. I'm one of the few people that still has a slide projector. I have not learned how to do PowerPoint, which is so popular these days, so that's one of my summer goals. But actually, I very much like my slide projector because it has never failed me, whereas PowerPoint has in the past. Mm. Computers, you know. So the good old technology is probably the best. But anyway, it's good to be here with you. So now we'll get serious. The Shroud of Turin is one of my favorite projects, personally. And this goes back to 1978, when I was working for NASA doing accounting. And I was not in the seminary at the time. I was still officially at William and Mary, but I was training to be an accountant and worked in the summer for NASA. At that time, a Dr. John Jackson, who worked for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory that was affiliated with NASA, had just come back from Turin, Italy. He was part of what is called the Shroud of Turin Research Project, commonly just called STIRP. Shroud of Turin Research Project. He was part of a team of scientists that were allowed by the Holy Father to do scientific investigation upon the Shroud. He gave a presentation down at NASA headquarters, which at that time was right across from Air and Space. And so he talked about this image of the Shroud and what a wonderful presentation it was. I'd have to say that increased my own faith and understanding of the sufferings of our Lord, and perhaps also helped inspire me when I decided a year later to enter the seminary after graduating college. But with that, too, in 1998, a good priest friend of mine, Father Daniel Spahala, who was at one time the assistant at St. Michael's, some of you probably know him, he and I went to Turin, Italy, the shroud was on special exhibit because it marked the 100th anniversary of the photography, the first photography of the shroud. So he and I went to Turin, and we were able to venerate the shroud and also even learn more. So it's always been a very important part of my life. Now, I do want to start with a caution, and the caution is simply this. The Catholic Church does not either say by definition, that this is the burial cloth of Christ, but at the same time, it doesn't say definitively that it is not. So it's still an open question. So it is definitely worth veneration, but there is no dogmatic or formal pronouncement that says, yes, this indeed is versus it is not. One of the reasons why is a little bit of the cloudiness of the history. 
But nevertheless, the Holy Fathers of recent times have definitely felt that this is truly a holy relic that is worth veneration. So, for instance, back in 1958, Pope Pius XII said that the shroud is a precious treasure which displays both to move and comfort us the image of the lifeless body and tortured face of Christ. Blessed Pope John XXIII, his successor, declared, the finger of God is here. And then, Pope John Paul II, who venerated the shroud twice, said, the holy shroud, the most splendid relic of the passion and the resurrection. And then, ten years later, in 1989, was asked by reporters if this really is the shroud. And he simply replied, it certainly is a relic. And then, again, ten years after that, he was asked, do you think that the shroud is genuine? He said, I think it is. Now, Pope Benedict venerated the shroud on May 2nd of 2010, not that long ago. And our Holy Father said, this is a moment that I have been waiting for for quite some time. I have found myself before the sacred shroud on another occasion, but this time I am experiencing this pilgrimage and this pause with particular intensity. Perhaps because the years make me more sensitive to the message of this extraordinary icon. Perhaps I would say above all, because I hear I am here as successor of St. Peter, and I carry in my heart the whole church, indeed all of humanity. I thank God for the gift of this pilgrimage. So without question, our Holy Fathers of recent times have definitely felt, believed, that this is the sacred shroud of our Lord that was covering his body when he was buried. Now, just to give you a little, a little bit of more scientific background, because tonight we're mostly going to deal with the science, and then we can also add the faith dimension. But the first scientific study was back in 1898. This was the development of photography with Secundo Pio. And he was a photographer. The shroud was on exhibit. And he was allowed for the first time to take a picture of the shroud. Time goes on. And I mentioned how in 1978, there was the Shroud of Turin Research Project. And many, of sci many scientists from our own country, I mentioned Dr. John Jackson, and there's a Dr. Alan Jumper, who were there, who did many different studies both photographic as well as pollen, textile analysis, and so on. This is all very important. The real problem to all this occurred in 1988 when a very small fragment of, of the cloth was taken and it was given to three laboratories, one at the University of Oxford, University of Zurich, University of Arizona, and Tucson. And they were allowed to do carbon dating. And with great relish, the three schools said that this was a product of the Middle Ages. We'll talk more about that. But since that time, further studies have been done, including by Dr. Jackson. He now lives in Colorado. He is affiliated with the, universe, the Air Force Academy. 
teaches physics there, but he runs one of the Shroud of Turin centers. He's continued to do studies, so have others, botanists, textile historians, and so we'll look at all this different studies. Again, the church does not declare that it is, but it doesn't declare that it isn't. I personally believe that it is. So with that, we're going to go to our first slide here and just talk a little bit about the, the history of the shroud. And one will see then that there's a little bit of problem, the tracing of the shroud. So we begin here. Hopefully you can see this. These are my little slides, and we don't have a movie theater projector here. But anyway, we start off in Jerusalem. So, of course, according to the Gospels, Jesus was crucified, buried, and he rose on Easter, about the year 33 A.D. The Gospels account in John chapter 19 as well as 20 tell us that when Peter and John went to the tomb that Easter Sunday morning, the tomb was empty, but they saw the burial cloth. It was neatly folded, and then there was another cloth, a cloth that covered the face. This was customary in Jewish burial tradition. So the Shroud of Turin was kept in Jerusalem, and then about the year 500, it appears about here in what would be Edessa, which is now Urfer, Turkey. So we're now in Edessa, then there's a 500-year gap almost. What happens? Well, one has to remember that in the year 70, the Jews in Jerusalem revolted against Rome. Now, that's a fatal mistake. So Josephus, the great Jewish historian for the Romans, recounted how the emperor Valerian, or Vespasian, sent his nephew, Titus Florus, to Jerusalem to put this revolt under control. Titus Florus surrounded Jerusalem. Anyone who was caught leaving was crucified. Eventually, Jerusalem capitulates, and this is after they even turned to cannibalism to survive. And Titus Florus went in, and he leveled the place. Now, Josephus tells us that the Christians had already fled. Now, one would think that they would have taken the shroud with them, of course. Now, we have to remember that just as we keep articles of our loved ones, perhaps deceased loved ones, and we keep them preserved, I'm sure many of you have such relics, wouldn't the apostles, Peter and John especially, have kept the shroud? So these early Christians would have taken the shroud with them. Now, they disbanded. They left Jerusalem. One has to remember, too, that after that time, Jerusalem is decimated. The Jews do come back, but really it's now a Roman city. And with that, we have Roman impressions. In about 130 AD, the Jews decide to revolt again, another fatal mistake. And so, again, the Romans come in, and then that is the end of Jerusalem, as we know it. And we have the Jewish diaspora and so on. But where does the shroud go? We don't have concrete evidence of year-to-year, day-to-day process here. But we do know that somewhere in Edessa, in the year 500, this shroud does appear, and it has been venerated. The next historical piece of evidence we have concerns the 
city of Constantinople. Now one has to remember again that Constantinople, named after the Emperor Constantine, was the capital of the side of the Roman Empire. The Emperor Diocletian, about the year 290, split the Roman Empire to manage it better. So you had Rome as the western capital, and, and then Byzantium was the eastern capital. When Constantine comes to power in 312, and he then legalizes Christianity in 313, he names Byzantium after himself, Constantinople. Makes sense to me. Well, by that time, let's say 1100, the western side, so old Rome, has fallen to the barbarians, and what still remains is the eastern side of the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire. The capital is still Constantinople. Why does the shroud then move from what would be Edessa to Constantinople? The Moslems. The Moslems, beginning in the 600, have moved from down here, Saudi Arabia, moved up, taken over the Holy Land, persecuted the Christians, never forget that, and moved up and started bordering on the Byzantine Empire. So if the Christians want to preserve the sacred relic, where do they go? They go to Constantinople. With that, then, the Crusades start occurring, and we find that in the year 1147, King Louis VII of France venerates the shroud in Constantinople. We know that in 1203, Robert de Clary, a French crusader, reports the exhibition and the veneration of the shroud. Now, after Robert de Clary's testimony, again, we have a little bit of a gap here. We know that in 1357, that this shroud moves from Constantinople and appears then in Leary, France, not too far from Paris. So here, it is on exhibit, and it is venerated. Then eventually, Margaret de Charny in 1453 acquires the shroud and takes it to Chambray, which is in southern France, and it is now given into entrustment to the House of Savoy. And here it is kept at Chambray Castle until about 1502. At that time, though, in about 1502-1532, somewhere around that time, there is a fire in the little chapel of the palace of the House of Savoy. And the shroud was kept folded. It was placed in a, civil, a silver reliquary. The fire was so intense that even part of the silver reliquary melted, and the molten metal burned part of the shroud. Now, if you think of a piece of paper, like when we were kids, we had folded up, you cut a corner, open it up, you have a nice design, right? Well, that's exactly what happened to the shroud. A group of nuns then patched the shroud, and they also put a lining on the back side of it, and also seamed the borders to preserve it. The shroud does have patches. It also has watermarks because of that fire. So around 1532 then, eventually the shroud moves to Turin, Italy. 
The House of Savoy governs the area of Turin. They entrust the shroud to the church. It's kept at the Cathedral of Turin, and there it has remained under the custody of the church. About 1990, officially though, officially the House of Savoy gave the shroud to the church. But until that time, it was just simply entrusted to the church guardianship. So here we have just a little bit of history. And now with that, we're going to go into a little bit of what does the shroud look like and what is it. So we'll go to our next slide here. Now from archaeological records, we do know that it was displayed, and this is just a Renaissance depiction. So in art history, we do have a depiction of the shroud as it was, but it's important to notice that this is the artist's rendering of the shroud. The shroud actually doesn't look this clear when one sees the figure. The shroud in itself, and this is just a little sample that I obtained in Turin when I was there, is really this long piece of linen cloth. It is about 14 feet long and three and a half feet wide. So we have this long piece. And it has the image, a two-sided image of our Lord. Jesus was placed on this cloth on the, in the tomb, and then it was folded over like this, which creates a top side and a bottom side image. So that's why it's so long. We'll talk a little bit more about why such a long piece of cloth and so on. But that's what it would look like. But the importance here is that we have a rather accurate artistic rendering. Remember, these are the days before photography and so on, so the only way you could sort of record a display would be through some kind of artwork. Next picture, please. And this is the shroud display case, or I should say the reliquary, better term, where it is kept in Turin, Italy. And normally it is preserved above an altar. It's at the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist. And so here it is kept under glass now. Now it's under a hermetically sealed container. Before that time, and this is, goes before the year 1998, the shroud didn't have that hermetical seal. So here you just have to keep in mind that over the centuries, this poor shroud has been exposed to candle soot, of course the smoke from a fire, there's the water markings from the extinguishing of the fire, then of course there's just the air that's around it, and with modern day times, Turin being an industrial city, suffers from pollution. There's been the handling of the shroud, so you think of oils from the hands and so on. This is always important to remember. Again today, since 1998, the shroud has been kept in a hermetically sealed container. So this actually looks just slightly different if you'd go to the cathedral today. Next slide. So here we go. So this would actually be the front image of our Lord if we look at it again. So we have Jesus here, this would be the face, and we go down, we have the hands folded about here, and then we have the feet. So the shroud is 
covering our Lord, this is actually the very end point of the shroud. So we're moving this way. Or actually, this is the top, so it would be underneath. But here's the burn marks. So you have the burn marks with the patchwork that is done there. Also, you'll notice these blotches here, for instance. Those are all blood stains. So they're very visible blood stains. Next slide. Here is the back side of the shroud. Again, you have the markings, the patchwork from the, sh the fire. And then also here we have numerous blood stains. And this is because of the scourging that was done on our Lord. These would be the feet. And here you have the impression of the left foot, especially, that left a major blood stain. Now, when we look at this shroud, you'll notice it's not very visible. To look at it just from the naked eye, one sees like a beige piece of cloth, and there's this very faint brownish, like a light brownish colored outline on it. So it's not really that visible with just our naked eye, but that's important to realize for future studies. Now, let's go to the next slide. And here is what the face of Jesus would look like. Now again, just looking at this from the naked eye, we don't see a whole lot. You have the beige shroud. You have this very faint image here. You do have the blood stains, again, from the crown of thorns. Next slide. Now, this is the amazing thing. In 1898, as I mentioned previously, Secundo Pio was allowed to take a photograph of the shroud for the first time. Now, remember, photography back then was not the nice digital age. Most of us probably remember the good old days when we had film, right? Like I still try to do, but they don't even make film anymore that I know of. But go back to the 1898s, and what did you have? You had a big glass plate that was treated with chemicals, and the photographer had this insert, and you had the lens, and he had the hooded drape and so on, and at the right time, he opened the shutter, he looked at his watch for so many seconds of exposure, and bingo, you had the negative, the photograph. And so Secundo Pio takes this picture of the shroud. He's in his laboratory to develop it. And what does he find? He finds this image. And what does that show you? It shows that the negative is really the positive. That what we're looking at on the shroud is almost like the negative image. If you remember the old negatives of photographs, have you ever seen them? Well, it's hard to depict what a person looks like, right? But if you look at the photograph, aha, voila, there it is. In this case, it's like the opposite. You look at the shroud with the naked eye, you're looking at like the negative. But when you look at the photographic negative, you're really looking at the positive. And what an astounding discovery this was, because all of a sudden, that face of Christ becomes much more clear. And one can see much better the wound marks and the eyes. And all of a sudden you can start seeing how the eyes are swollen, the nose is broken, the cheek is bruised. And doctors start thinking, 
appears almost like an x-ray, isn't it? That we're seeing a real being, a human being. Next slide. Now, this would be the shroud, the full image of Christ. So here we have him, the front view, the back view. And what you'd have to do is sort of think of, here's Jesus here, and take this and flip it up so that it goes like this. Okay, so it's this one long piece of cloth. So really, this front side is draping over the back side. So anyway, so here we see that we have our Lord's face, and here we have the position of the hands, and then we have the feet. Now, we don't see the full image of the feet at the bottom. The shroud doesn't seem to cover the fullness of the feet. And then we have the back side again, and then we have the feet fully visible. So when they laid our Lord in the tomb, when they covered him, remember, it was done rather quickly. Good Friday, they wanted the bodies off the cross. They had to put Jesus in the tomb before sunset when Passover began. So this wasn't a well-thought-out process, but rather something very quickly done. Again here, these are the burn stains, so the burn marks. And this little picture here just gives you what it looks like with the naked eye versus the photographic negative, which is really the positive image. Next slide. Now, when you look at the shroud, and this is where we really start getting more into the 1978 studies, because with enhanced photography, they could look at the shroud much better and then also just look at what the shroud is displaying. So first of all, we look at the scourging. The Gospels tell us that Jesus was scourged. So he's scourged by the Romans. They did it with usually two men involved here. Something wrong with the microphone? No. All right, so two men, and poor Jesus would be here changed to a post, and they would whip him. And they would go very methodically from the top to the bottom and back up again, one after the other. According to what we know from the shroud, our Lord, our Lord was scourged 40 times. But each of the flagella had three whips at the end. So you have a single handle with the three whips. Go to the next slide. Okay, here's the better depiction. So here's the flagellum, and we would have at the very end these two balls with spikes. This is what we have from the shroud, and there'd be three of them. So each time our Lord is being whipped, he's really being hit three times. So 40 times 3, 120. And there's 120 wounds, and each of those wounds really it has a result of like a two-prong wound, almost like a butterfly effect. The Romans used a flagellum that would have either metal balls, sort of like these with spikes, or maybe hooks, or perhaps it would be seashells, or even pieces of bone that would be like hooks. If you've ever seen The Passion of Christ by Mel Gibson that was released several years ago, and you've seen that scene of the 
the scourging of our Lord. Very accurate. Extremely accurate. The Romans were very methodical. They intended to use crucifixion as the worst possible punishment. And it was for those who were criminals, who were traitors against the state, meaning those who were rebels, those who tried to usurp the power of Caesar. Now, the scourging was just the preliminary process in that the scourging weakened the person, did not kill the person, see? and the scourging was just meant to weaken so that the person would die much more quickly. Crucifixion was so awful that 60 years before our Lord, Cicero, who was a Roman senator, had a law passed that a Roman citizen could not be crucified. And that's why St. Paul dies by the sword. He's beheaded. St. Paul's a Roman citizen. Peter is crucified for the faith, but St. Paul is beheaded. Also, crucifixion was meant to terrorize people. Again, it was used for traitors. So when we think about our Lord, when he's condemned by the Sanhedrin on Good Friday, what was the charge? Blasphemy. He claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God, one in being with the Father. But when the Jewish leaders bring him to Pontius Pilate, what's the charge? King of the Jews. Pilate doesn't care if Jesus is the Messiah, doesn't care if he's a rabbi. But if he claims to be king of the Jews, that means he's usurping the power of Caesar Tiberius. And for that reason, Pontius Pilate condemns Jesus to crucifixion. Now one has to remember too, Pontius Pilate was a cruel man and Pontius Pilate did not enjoy his position. To be the procurator of Judea was like being appointed by President Obama the ambassador of Afghanistan. Good luck. You know, what joy, rapture. It's like the armpit of the world. That was Judea. And the Jewish people staged revolts, and they staged insurrections. So when Pilate hears that this man is claiming to be the king of the Jews, and he sees that these people are starting to revolt, what does it matter if he has this man crucified, even if he's innocent? Important point. So he's going to make an example. Now, next slide. So this would be the scourging then. So you have in the dark outline the marks by one soldier, in the white outlines the marks by another. So again, very methodically, they go back and forth 20 times each. You can imagine being hit with that flagellum with the three spiked balls at the end and how it was just gouging the flesh. We can't imagine the pain that our Lord endured. Next slide. This is the back of our Lord. So if you look at the Shroud of Turin and you put it into a contemporary artistic representation, this is how the back of our Lord would have looked. When we look at the crucifixes that we have today, they're rather sanitized, no matter how bad they look. If some of you were able, last spring, the National Gallery of Art had an exhibition of sacred statuary 
from the Spanish colonies and from Spain too. And the Spanish are very, I use the term emotional in their depiction. And one, a couple of the statues that were there actually depicted this quite well. But we don't see it too often. We look at Jesus on the cross and he looks rather clean, right? And we might say, oh, what's suffering our Lord? But when you look at it this way, and then you try to imagine what's going on, and really the blood flowing, it must have been awful. And even here you can see the matted hair from the sweat and the blood. Next slide. So if we look then at the shroud, we see that there's numerous blood stains along the head. So this would be the upper part back of the head. This is the upper part and also the, the, the forehead of our Lord. So, and again, too, in examining the evidence, we have here Jesus with the broken nose, major bruise here, swelling of the eyes. So, remember, the high priest slaps our Lord, or his servant slaps our Lord, and then also we think of how Jesus fell as he's carrying the cross. So, our Lord suffered numerous bruising. So, next so if we look at the crown of thorns, now one thing important is that in the archaeological records that we have, while we have evidence of crucified criminals and even the process, there's only one that we know of that mentions a crowning with thorns, and that is Christ. That's very important when you look at the shroud. So it's not someone else. It is typical of Jesus. When we look at the crown of thorns, oftentimes we see this little wreath. But it seems to be, from the shroud evidence, more of like a cap almost. And that almost makes sense. You know, the Roman soldiers aren't going to take the time to weave a nice wreath. And also, when you think that these thorns here, if we look at the botanical evidence, are probably three inches long. They don't have the time or even the facility to weave a nice wreath. So probably they gathered up a bunch of thorns, maybe pieced them together with a piece of rope and so on, and placed it on our Lord's head. Now imagine that. Any of us that have bumped our head to the point of bleeding know what that's like. The wounds to the head are profuse in their blood so, and very painful too. I think here again, Mel Gibson did a wonderful job. I shouldn't, I mean, it's a bad adjective maybe, but in depicting the scourging and then our poor Lord's just sitting there and the Romans mock him and they actually press this crown of thorns on his head. I can't imagine the pain. It must have been a, like a bomb exploding in our Lord's brain. So, next slide. And then our Lord would have been fitted with the cross. Now, the Romans, archaeologically, usually had the vertical beam in place. That was called the stipace. So what they would do is pick an execution site, so Calvary, for instance, and they'd either set the posts in so they could be used over and over again, or maybe take a tree and shave it down, cut it to the certain level, and that would be the post. Now, here we have also then the cross beam. 
so the horizontal bar, the patibalum. So this would probably be 50 to 100 pounds in weight, and this would be tied to the criminal. He would have to carry it. Again, the Romans are very methodically trying to debilitate this person. Not kill him, debilitate him. So Jesus has to carry the patibalum, this crossbeam to Calvary. He would have been linked with the other two criminals, so they would have been tied together at one end of the cross and also tied by their feet. Again, the shroud indicates that you have these like uh, abrasions near the ankle and also that, of course, if one falls, they all fall. But they did this, too, because this way a criminal couldn't use that crossbeam like as a weapon because if you're going to try to you know, swing your crossbeam, you're taking the other guys with you. See, So very methodical. So they're tied together, the two thieves plus our Lord, and they're walking to Calvary. Next slide. And then we find here bruise on our Lord. So from the shroud evidence, major blood stain here, which would be at the knee. And one could imagine when you fall, and the Gospels as well as our stations mention that Jesus fell, pow, right on the ground. Plus, you have that weight. So, huge abrasion right near the knee. Next. And then our Lord is, so here it shows that he's falling. He falls on his face. He faces down. And again, just to point out that here we have the fracture on the nose. There's the swelling of the eye. Swelling here, cheekbone, also of the eye. So, again, numerous abrasions. Next. And then our poor Lord is stripped of his clothing. Again, just the blood stains from the shroud. And can you imagine that? You have this cloth on, and here you're not only bloody, you're sweaty. You've carried this cross, and they rip it off. We all know what that's like from having a Band-Aid taken off a wound or something or a dressing. Imagine the pain. Next. And then our Lord is nailed to the cross. Now, usually artists depict that the nail went through somewhere in the palm of the hand. And part of the problem is that the gospel mentions that Jesus showed his wound marks to Thomas. He says, you know, feel the wound marks in my hand and so on. In Greek, care is the word for hand. But that word includes not just hand, but also wrist and forearm. It's a problem. Archaeology tells us that it is not feasible anatomically just to nail someone here and expect them to hang. We think of bodily weight because our hands are just an amalgamation of little bones and cartilage and so on. The person would pull off the cross. But if you feel this nice little soft spot right at your wrist between the radius and the ulna, there's a nice little soft spot there. That's where the nail goes. And if you press that, what happens? Your thumb pops in, right? Press that, you hit the median nerve, your thumb pops in. And so that's exactly what happened with our Lord because when you look at the shroud, you see four fingers but no thumb. And what's happened is that our Lord is nailed there, the thumb pops in, it stays that way, 
He dies, rigor mortis sets in, and that's where the thumb locks. So when you look at the shroud, you see four fingers on each hand, but no thumbs. And the reason why is because they've been put inward. And then the hands are folded over each other. So the thumbs are inward, and you see no thumbs. Now, next. And so then with the feet, again, major huge blood stains on the feet. And here we have the left foot imprint. And the reason why is because, again, the left foot probably was placed over the right foot and then nailed. Right Now, they suggest right about here. Since these pictures were taken, most recently, around the year 2000, further studies been done, and there's further archaeological evidence and also from the shroud, perhaps to suggest that Jesus was nailed through the ankles. Now, that sounds strange, but the Romans oftentimes did that because it was more secure. So you'd have the right foot and then the left foot, and somehow through the ankles they drove the nail. And then our poor Lord would have been like twisted on the cross and hanging there. It's not unusual, but that's probably how it happened. Next slide. And then here would be just a, an archaeological nail, typical of one used at crucifixion. So this is, an ar and again here we have the huge blood stain from the foot. But this nail, some corrosion here, was probably about 8 to 10 inches long, a square shank, it was tapered down, and then once it was put through the cross, it was pounded over, so bent, so it wouldn't pop through. Again, if you look at Mel Gibson's movie, that's very accurate, that poor Jesus is nailed to the cross, and then what do they do? They flip him over and bang the nails, so they will not come out. Next. And this is how our Lord hung upon the cross. Now, you can imagine the incredible pain. Notice, too, left foot is over the right. The nail marks are in the wrists there, and you have Jesus hanging. Now, the person did not die of blood loss. The person died of suffocation. The Romans planned that probably it would take 24 to 72 hours for a person to die. They wanted it to be slow. And so as you're hanging there, eventually your poor legs just give way and you drop. How do you hold up your weight? And then your chest muscles start pulling and your lungs start collapsing. You die of suffocation. Now think, Jesus is crucified on Good Friday, and by evening, the Jewish leaders say to Pontius Pilate, we want the bodies off the cross, Passover's coming. Pontius Pilate orders that the legs be broken. And the reason why is if you break the legs, you hang all the more, and you're going to suffocate more quickly. Jesus is already dead, so his legs aren't broken. But the two thieves have their legs broken. So Jesus died rather quickly, three hours. But think of it. Here you are on this cross, a rough cross. Your back has been scourged 120 times total, total wounding. And you're trying to keep yourself up. Imagine how that feels on your back. 
than imagine birds, bugs, and so on. How awful. What an awful type of death. So, and then what we have to think spiritually is then, why? And that's our sins. So, next slide. So here we have then a lance. Now, this would be typical of a Roman lance. It's archaeological. But we see from the Shroud of Turin that Jesus has a wound mark on his right side. So Longinus, the soldier, is ordered to see if Jesus is dead. And so he takes his lance, thrusts it between the fifth and sixth rib. It strikes the heart, and the gospel says, out flowed blood and water. Theologically, that's for Holy Eucharist and baptism. Medically, it's because you hit the heart. You not only hit the pericardial fluid, which looks like water, you also hit the heart, the ventricle, which would have the blood there too. So you have both. So medically speaking, you hit the pericardial fluid, and then in the myocardium, outflows the blood. So, but this would have been the lance probably about... 10 inches in length to one foot. Now, according to tradition, when Longinus strikes the heart, the blood gushes out, strikes him in the face, in his eyes, and he becomes a believer. He's known as St. Longinus. Good point. Next. Okay. And then here again is just the blood stain from the wound. Part of it's been uh, covered over. It's been hurt because of the fire, because that's the patch. Okay, next. So our Lord's taken down from the cross. Okay, next. And he's placed in the tomb. So here you have a rather accurate depiction where Jesus is here, and notice how the legs are bent, and you have also Jesus, the head is, the neck part is bent, and you have the shroud placed under, and it goes over like this. And then he's placed in the a depiction of how our Lord probably looked. Okay, next slide. Okay, so again, here you would have that. Now, the problem with this picture is that this is a little bit more elaborate than what probably the burial cloth that Jesus had. So again, his would have been something that came right over the head, something much more simple. We'll talk about that next. Okay, and then there's the resurrection. Again, the gospel speaks about two cloths that were folded, one that covered the body and then one that just covered the face. Now, as far as the face cloth goes, we don't know as much about it, but it is believed to be the relic that is kept in Oviedo, Spain. And our Holy Father in his also visited that. Okay, next. Now, we're going to deal... Given the archaeological, historical evidence that we have, we're going to talk more about the scientific research that's been done. This is Dr. Jackson, actually, from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, who I met and spoke of earlier. So in 1978, the Holy Father allowed them to do this scientific research on the shroud. Now, they did not do carbon dating at that time, but they did a whole host of other tests. Next slide. So the first thing we're going to look at is just the shroud itself. Again, the shroud is 
about 14 feet in length, and it is about three and a half feet in width. The shroud is made of a linen cloth, and linen was a very durable fabric. So we have Egyptian mummies, for instance, that are maybe 2,000 years before our Lord, and they're still preserved. So we shouldn't think that linen couldn't survive. It could. One important part of this is they found from the textile analysis that some of the cotton that was found in the linen is particular to the area of Jerusalem. It's important. So the idea that this was somehow woven in Europe doesn't make any sense. Also, they found that the weave in the cloth is a herringbone weave. That is also something typical of Jerusalem at the time. It was a fine quality. The textile analysis also said that it was called a Z-twist. Now, I never knew what a Z-twist was, but when I gave this presentation Friday at my parish, actually a textile major was there. And she said to me that a Z-twist is when you take the threads, so you have this like cotton and flax and so on, you're making the thread, you twist it to the right, like a clock or a counterclockwise, I guess it's counterclockwise, no, clockwise twist, whereas an S-twist is to the left. Well, I didn't know that. But anyway, it sort of, somehow it makes sense, but it's called a Z-twist. Now, it's a very fine kind of linen, but it also shows that it was done on a spindle. Now, if it were the Middle Ages, it would have been done on a wheel, so a spinning wheel, right? But at that time, it was done on a little spindle. Also, looking at the textile analysis, that each of the individual threads was bleached. If it were the Middle Ages, the whole cloth would have been woven and then bleached. So much different. Now, there's also some question about the length of the cloth. 14 feet seems awfully long. Perhaps it was a tablecloth. Perhaps it was from the Last Supper. So they found, they conjecture that that's a possibility because they did find some wine stains on the cloth. So it could have been. Again, all this was really a, a very rushed kind of burial. So typically then, we have this cloth that is of a fabric with the cotton particular to Jerusalem and the flax, that you have a herringbone pattern, typical of Jerusalem at the time, that there is this Z-twist, and it also is something done on a spindle that would predate most likely the Middle Ages, especially the spindle, because they would have been using spinning wheels at the time. All that's very important. But then as they were looking at the cloth too, they noticed the, the pollen. So Dr. Max Free, a Swiss criminologist, dealt with the pollen. And then this was later corroborated in the, about the year 2000 by two Jewish professors. One was a Dr. Avinoam Denin, and also there was a Dr. Uri Baruch, who worked at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. So they found that on the cloth, there were 24 samples of pollen particular to Jerusalem or Jordan, that area alone. So you had pollen samples from the area of Europe, of Turkey, but there are 24 samples of pollen unique 
to the area of Jerusalem, Jordan, and also the Sinai Desert. Now, pollen is very durable. It can last really hundreds, even thousands of years. So it's a very good marker as to where this shroud originated. Now, the two Jewish botanists that did the study in 2000, as far as the pollen goes, also identified two very important plants. One was called the rock's rose, the Cystus creticus, and also the Gundelia tornifortii. Both are thorn bushes, and they could easily be linked to the crown of thorns. So these thorn bushes that are particular to the area of Israel, Jordan, the Sinai Desert. Now, when we look at these pollen samples then, we can definitely say that yes, the shroud has been in Europe, so the area of France, it's been in Turkey, but most importantly, it has been in Jerusalem. Now, if this were made by some medieval artist, where would he get the pollen from? Right? Are you going to go to Jerusalem to find a rock's rose bush and get some of that pollen? I sincerely doubt that. Now, we look here and we go to and we see the blood stains. Okay, so there's blood stains on the shroud. So they've done evidence or done experiments on this, and in 1978 they're able to identify this without question as human blood, and also type AB. Now it's sort of interesting that if you know of the miracle of Lanciano that occurred in 800, where a priest was offering mass in Lanciano, Italy, and he was going through doubts of whether transubstantiation actually occurred, and the sacred host actually turned to flesh, and the sacred precious blood actually turned to human blood, and those have been preserved, and they've been researched upon in 1980 and also 1990, and found to be type AB, human blood. Interesting. So there is a connection there. Now, also with the, the blood, too. In the year, about the year 2000, they did further studies, and they were able to show without question that this is the 46-chromosome XY blood, meaning that this is a human male blood, again, type AB. So it's not like animal blood or anything else. Another interesting thing is that when you look at the shroud, that the blood stains are rather bright red. You know, when we get a cut or something, the blood eventually turns brown. But this is a bright red. And they wondered, well, why was this? Well, there's a phenomenon called hemolysis. And when a person goes through trauma, the serums in the blood separate. And that allows the blood to have this bright red disposition, even upon the drying. So the 1978 STIRP team found this hemolysis had taken place. Next slide. So this again just gives some evidence of the pollen and also here against the blood stains. Now this little checkerboard that you see is just that they took the cloth and they divided it up using threads so that they could, I guess, guess give like a geographic location for the different experimentation. Next slide. And then here is a fiber, okay, two fibers 
very important because what's interesting about the shroud is that the, they couldn't identify exactly how was the image made. There's no presence of paint or a dye or anything like that. So there's nothing that penetrates the fabric as far as the image goes. The blood does. So the blood actually goes through. So just like you take wine and spill it on a tablecloth, for instance. Well, the wine goes through. And if you think of a grid on a piece of fabric, so the, the weaving grid, it's going to get in the little joints there, not on the shroud. You see very particular, like, scorch marks on it. Again, no dye, no paint at all, without question. And also, where the scorch marks are that make the image, they are not present where there's been a blood stain. See, so Christ was laid in the tomb, the blood penetrates, then when there's the resurrection, that's when the image is made. Because the image is not where the blood is. Now think of it too. If you're an artist, are you going to paint the wound marks first? No. You're going to paint the image first. And then you're going to paint the wound marks. There's no image where the blood stains are. So then they have to figure out, well, how does this occur? How do you get this like surface scorching that makes the image? Now, we'll go on to the next slide. In doing so, they found that the image was three-dimensional. Now, NASA had at that time, and still does, called a VP8 analyzer. It was used for really the moon photographs. And in that, they could reproduce a three-dimensional kind of image. So when the satellites or rockets went up to the moon, they could take the picture, and it could be transported and computerized so that you had a three-dimensional photograph. Now, what's important about a VP8 analyzer is that if you just put a flat-surfaced photograph, like a piece of paper or a picture or a painting, it would all come out jumbled. So it had for, for the VP8 analyzer to take the actual element and then transport it into a photograph, this has to be three-dimensional to make the three-dimensional photograph. If this is a painting or if this is just a flat surface, this isn't going to work. It's going to come out blurred. So when they took this and put it through the VP8 analyzer, you have a three-dimensional photograph. Amazing. So there's a surface to this. So it's like there had to be some process where the impression left a three-dimensional image, a depth, a change in depth. Now, Dr. Jackson, and I remember this in 1978 as I was listening to this lecture, and it stuck with me because he said the only way to explain it is like a thermonuclear blast. He said when the atomic bombs were dropped at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, this huge amount of energy was released. So that if you had a person, this wave of energy hit the person and, boom, made their impression like on a wall. So that's the only way to explain what's happening here. He said it's like this burst of energy, this thermonuclear reaction. 
Well, think about it. If you have Jesus resurrecting body and soul from the dead, isn't that like a total change of matter? Almost like a nuclear explosion in a way? And he's passing through the cloth, and it's going to make that like three-dimensional image. Now, with that, next slide. Here we have, again, this. Now, as they did further studies with this, they found there were coins on the eyes. So with enhanced photography, and this goes a little bit later, they found that there were coins. So in a, one year later, Father Francis Filas, a Jesuit from Loyola University in Chicago, looked at this STIRP research, and he did enhanced photography, and he said on the right eyelid of the man were four letters, and he identified it as a Roman coin, the dileptum litaeus, which has a staff on it, which was coined around the year 29 AD. And then on the left eye was the lepton simplum, also coined around the year AD 29. These coins were used to keep the eyes closed. Now, for the pagans, they used coins because Chiron, the, the mythology person, would use those coins as payment to take the person across the river Styx to Hades. But the Jews used coins to keep the eyelids down after death. So there's actually images of coins. Now keep in mind, again, there's a dating here. Because if you're a medieval painter, where do you get the Roman coins? See, that's the key. Now, with that too, they did further studies. And I don't have a slide of this, but they found letters on the fabric. And there were letters. So this goes back to 1978 also. But they found letters in Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. And one of the words, two words, in nechem, which is a Latin phrase, partial, for in nechem ibis, you will go to death. They found the word Nazarenus, Nazarene. Petso, which means to accomplish in Greek, it refers to having celebrated a sacrifice. In 2010, Thierry Castex, also an archaeologist, did further studies, and she found Hebrew characters which had the phrase, the king of the Jews. This was not unusual, that after a person was buried, there would be some kind of an identification placed on the shroud, sort of like a burial marker tombstone that we would have today. Next slide. So if you take the three-dimensional photograph and you have like a sculpture made, this is sort of what Jesus would look like. And he'd be about six feet tall. Now you notice you can barely see them, but there's only four fingers. The thumb is underneath here. So next slide. Now this is Pope John Paul II who came to visit Turin and he's venerating the shroud. Okay, now, we can turn off the projector and turn on the lights, and we just have to finish up a couple of things, and we'll go from there. Now, if you remember, I said that the church does not definitively say that this is the burial cloth of Christ. There's three objections. Some have said that this does not fit the burial rites of the Jews. According to the Jews at that time, 
the person who is dead would normally be washed. So it was called the tahara. So they'd be washed clean and anointed. Then they'd be placed in special burial garments, sort of like pajamas, the takarim. And then after they're put in these burial garments, they would be put in the cloth, which would be the sovev. So Jesus is only in the sovev. So they say, well, therefore, it's got to be a medieval forgery. Wrong. Because for the Jews, blood was sacred. You needed your blood for the resurrection of the dead. That's why Jesus was not washed. See, And also because the bodies are taken down and they have to be buried so quickly. No time for the special little garments like the pajamas. He's simply put in the cloth, the sovev. So that argument that it doesn't fit the burial rites doesn't have any standing. Second argument, it's medieval artwork. Well, you've heard me talk about that this would be impossible. Well, good art historians have also said that. There's an Isabel Pitchek, who's an art historian, and she said there's no way this could be a medieval artwork. The reason why is they didn't have the techniques. If you go to the National Gallery of Art and go to the medieval section, you will see nothing that looks like this. How is a medieval artist going to, to, to produce a negative image when you think about it, right? Or to think, as I mentioned, that you have the image and there's the blood stains. The blood stains go through the canvas, but the image does not, and the image isn't under the blood stains. Doesn't make sense. Why would a medieval artist with this thing of conception have the front side short so that the feet aren't totally covered? I mean, if you're going to do a piece of art, you're going to center the, the person, right? So it just doesn't fit. And also just the idea of the nail marks being inaccurate, because most artists put them in the palm. And also, too, that with the image, the fibers are not penetrated with any kind of paint or dye. There's nothing in between. If it were paint or dye, like an artist would use, you'd have that. So it can't be a piece of medieval artwork. Again, too, never forget the pollen. Where do you get the pollen? Where do you get the coins and so on? There's no way that this could have been of the Middle Ages. Now, the big sticking point for many is the carbon dating done in 1988. The church allowed a fragment about a half-inch wide, three-inch long strip to be taken from the edge of the shroud. As I mentioned, it was given to three universities, Oxford, Zurich, University of Arizona, Tucson, for carbon dating. And when it was released, there was this sort of almost nasty glee. And they had this press conference. And on the blackboard, they wrote 1260 to 1390. And this Dr. Henry Gove, was a nuclear physicist, said that it was about one in a thousand trillion that the shroud could have been worn by Jesus. And he called those who believe in the genuineness of the shroud flat earthers. Well, that hit the press. You saw the headline, shroud is a fake, shroud is a fake, and so on. But immediately scientists said, something's wrong here. Because carbon dating's not so easy. You have to have a good sample. And what did they do? They took the edge. Now, what's happened here? 
Every time I would have held this up for public display, what am I holding? The edge. All this nice little finger gook is going to be on that edge. It's been burned. It's been patched. And there's a nice little seam that, for some reason, they didn't detect, that the happy little nuns wove around. So you've got those little threads there. You have the soot, the pollution, the candle soot, and everything else affecting it. It wasn't a good sample. And that's the problem. When you weigh that, and what a good scientist would have said, well, if that's what the carbon dating says, and you look at all the other evidence, something must be wrong. Good archaeologists immediately said that. Look, you've got all this other evidence that points it to the, to the Holy Land, to that time frame, and now you have this one little test, something's got to be wrong. And they have found that the sample was contaminated. Recent studies have shown, doesn't get the press because everybody now believes the shroud is a fake, right? But the key is, further studies have shown that sample was contaminated. Dr. Jackson is still doing research on this, and he'll be the first to say that. Also, a Dr. Garza Valdez, who is an archaeologist who specializes in Mayan culture, noted that when he did carbon dating, sometimes it was skewed. He knew this artifact came for a certain period, did the carbon dating, and it came up centuries wrong. He said, why? So he did research, and he noticed that there could be this bacterial coating, which he called bioplasticity. So bacteria over time can grow on something, and that skews the carbon dating. Could be by centuries. So he said, here again you have a contamination that's going to skew this. But most recently, and this goes to the year 2005, we'll actually first go back to 1989, Dr. Thomas Phillips of Harvard University High Energy Physics Laboratory published in Nature, quote, if the Shroud of Turin is in fact the burial cloth of Christ, then according to the Bible, it was present at a unique physical event, the resurrection of dead body. Unfortunately, this event is not accessible to direct scientific scrutiny. But the body may have radiated neutrons, which would have irradiated the shroud and changed some of the nuclei to different isotopes by neutron capture. In particular, some carbon-14 would have been generated from carbon-13. If we assume that the shroud is 1950 years old and that the neutrons were emitted thermally, enough carbon-13 would have been converted to carbon-14 to give an apparent carbon date of 670 years, which, going backwards, would be 14th century. Put in plain English, what he's saying is there was a problem in the carbon dating that was done. Now, in 2005, Dr. Raymond Rogers, who describes himself as an agnostic, simply a scientist, in Thermochemica Acta said, the radiocarbon sample has completely different chemical properties than the main part of the shroud relic. Important. They didn't take the actual relic, they took that edge. He said that the test in 1988 was from the reweave, done by the happy little nuns, right? And that part of that reweave used cloth that was of the 1500s and was dyed to match the shroud. 
that's going to skew your carbon dating. He says, quote, pryolysis mass spectrometry. I have not a clue what that means. Okay. <laughs> Results from the sample area coupled with microscopic and microchemical observations prove that the radiocarbon sample was not part of the original shroud. That sample has completely different chemical properties than the main part of the shroud relic. He also talked about part of the plant material in the linen. So linen has something called lignin. Lignin decomposes into something called vanillin. Okay. Now, he says there's no vanillin in the shroud, which means that the shroud is very old. If it were a medieval cloth, there would be 37% of vanillin left in it. All right, what's that mean? The shroud is older than the Middle Ages. Good. So he says that if you look at the kinetics of vanillin loss, this would suggest the shroud is between 1,300 and 3,000 years old. Well, that fits, folks. Now, most interestingly, he said, now this is an agnostic, Dr. Raymond Rogers. There were people who have been working on the shroud who would have sold tickets to the crucifixion. There are an awful lot of dishonest people working in this. How true. When you look at that Dr. Gove, and when you see how he was photographed and what he said, and with such relish saying that it's between 1260 and 1390 and so on, you have to wonder if there's a plot in all of this. And it's also interesting because in 2097, right before the shroud was put on exhibit again, there's another fire in the Cathedral of Turin. And thankfully, a very brave Italian fireman went in, used an axe, and broke the case of the shroud to save it from the fire. It's almost like there's this diabolical plot to shatter any belief in time for the new millennium. And that was the new millennium when Pope John Paul II wanted people to have a renewal of faith and so on. Wasn't it just wonderful? that these scientists could say, well, this is a fake. Or that even you could have maybe the devil destroy the cloth. And I'm sincere about that. But thank God it's still here. And there are many good scientists to this day that will say this is the burial cloth of Christ. Now, one last little thing, and you can look at this later. When I was in Turin, they had an actual picture of the shroud. And if you move it, it has the artist, what the shroud would show depicting Jesus. So you can look at this more closely because it's hard to see here, but it's really a pretty cool picture. So it has the face of the shroud and then it also has what the artist using that would say would be the face of Jesus. And that pretty well fits what we believe about our Lord. So you can come up and look at this later. So that's it. I personally believe it. Hopefully you do. But if nothing else, even if this is just authentic to the time, it does help us understand better the passion. And as you move into Holy Week, I hope that you'll reflect on the sufferings that our Lord endured for our salvation. So, Sabatino. Thank you, Father Saunders. Excellent presentation. Thank, Thank you. you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, 
please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.